Welcome to a special episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Pastor Bob Thune, and it is a new day in America. Roe versus Wade has been overturned by the Supreme Court. Some of you are ecstatic about that. Some of you are uncertain what to think about that. Some of you are confused about that. We are going to talk about that on this special episode of the Wednesday Conversation. And when I say the Wednesday Conversation, I mean... The Wednesday monologue because I'm recording this one solo. Uh, this is just a, a special episode of me on very short notice trying to give some pastoral direction and answer some questions that people have been asking. And rather than a regularly scheduled recording session, uh, we are cramming this one in uh, to get it out this week in light of the decision the court made last Friday. So thanks for listening in. And I know there's some questions probably swirling around your mind and your church, like the ones that are swirling around my mind and in the conversations I've been having over the past few days and weeks. I have the entire 212 pages of the Dobbs versus Jackson decision in front of me, the whole thing printed out here sitting on the table. And we are going to talk about it. We sensed that this might be coming because on May 2nd, in an unprecedented leak, the draft opinion of the majority decision made it out to Politico. And of course, that took us all by surprise. And so there was speculation, hey, maybe the court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. But we've learned in moments like this, it's best just to wait for the actual decision to come out rather than speculating and prognosticating Let's just wait till the decision is made. And that happened last Friday, June 24th. The Supreme Court issued the final ruling in Dobbs, and it did indeed overturn both Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and sent the uh, legislation about abortion back to each state to decide. So basically, the way to think about it legally in America is that the Supreme Court has returned things to the way they were before Roe versus Wade. On the day that Roe versus Wade was decided, 30 states out of the 50 prohibited abortion at all times. And so really what Roe did was to legislate nationally for abortion to be legal in every state, even though at that time it was legal in only 20 states and illegal in the other 30. And Roe did that by finding in the Constitution a constitutional right to abortion and the jurisprudence by which the court said that the constitution written by the way in 1787, that the constitution of the United States had in it a right to abortion. The jurisprudence around that was always somewhat questionable. Even very good legal scholars who are very pro abortion have said, Hey, the Roe decision is just not good legal work. And so uh, for some time, the questions in the legal field have been, was Roe good jurisprudence? Did, was it decided on good constitutional grounds? And here in the Dobbs case, uh, enough sort of um, precedent has come before the court and enough cases with enough nuance have come before the court that they have finally ruled that, in fact, there is not a constitutional right to abortion that the framers of the Constitution never had in mind a right to abortion, and therefore that Roe should be overturned and the matter returned to the states. A lot of folks have been asking, how should Christians respond to this? What should we do? What should we feel? How should we think? 
what's the right response in this moment? Obviously, it's a very polarizing moment in our culture. Some people are ecstatic. Some people are lamenting. What should we as Christians be doing? And that's the question I want to get to as a pastor trying to give some counsel and wisdom. But I want to get there, first of all, by telling a few stories. I want to bring you into some of the back story of what decisions about abortion uh, have in mind, the stories that they impact, the actual real people and real situations that lie in the background of this kind of jurisprudence. So I'm going to tell you three stories from my own life. Story number one, I'm 16 years old. I am a junior in high school, a student at Millard North High School right here in Omaha, Nebraska. And as a 16-year-old, I belong to a church, and our church has agreed one Saturday a month that we will take responsibility with some other churches for showing up and praying outside the abortion clinic, uh, just praying for life and for the moms who are making these tragic decisions. So on a Saturday morning, my dad, who was the pastor of the church I grew up in, uh, as, a, as just trying to be a good example for the church, he would go down and be there on Saturday mornings. And so I got in the car with him, my brother and I, and we went uh, to the what was then the abortion clinic at 46th and Douglas Street. For those of you who are Omaha residents, if you know where the Rathskeller Beer House is, what used to be Caffeine Dreams, the building directly to the north of that was for many years an abortion clinic. Uh, you wouldn't know it. It's a very nondescript building. By looking at it, you would never know that there was an abortion facility there. But back in those days, that was one of the two or three abortion centers in the city of Omaha. So we showed up there and here's how it went. This is the late eighties, maybe 1990. Uh, we stand on the sidewalk across the street from the abortion clinic, because of course, sidewalks are public property. You couldn't stand on the property of the clinic, but you could stand on the sidewalk. So Let's say there's about two dozen people, maybe three dozen people standing on the sidewalk. It's funny because it was evangelicals and Catholics. The Catholics have always been a wonderful uh, pro-life community. But it was funny because it was like the evangelicals would stand on one sidewalk and we would have a little, you know, little prayer gatherings, two or three people huddled up praying. The Catholics would be on the other sidewalk lighting candles and saying the rosary together. And it was sort of like, you know, we each do our own thing, but we're here together. Um, so there we were. Uh, standing on the sidewalk across from the abortion clinic on a Saturday morning. And, and here's how it would work. Saturday morning at 8 a.m., uh, the clinic would open and uh, people would pull up and park in the parking lot across the street. The parking lot was across the street. So you had to park, get out of your car, walk across the street to the clinic. So uh, these moms who are um, planning to have abortions would pull into the parking lot. We would just be standing there praying. We were not allowed to say anything, um, to to be demonstrative in any way. Literally our presence was just show up and pray. There was one person who was allowed to speak and that was the sidewalk counselor. This was a woman, always a woman. It was a mom speaking to another mom. These sidewalk counselors were trained and equipped and what they did, they did with ferocity and beauty. I have never seen the kind of spiritual authority that was present in most of these sidewalk counselors when they spoke to these moms. And here's what they would do as the woman would get out of the car. This sidewalk counselor would just stand there on the sidewalk and in a very gentle, kind, but pleading and earnest way would say something like, Hey mom, please don't do this. That baby inside you is alive. 
We want to help you. You don't have to go through with this. We have people who will adopt your baby. We have people who will walk with you on the whole journey. We want to support you and help you. Please don't go forward with this. Let us talk to you. And these, they would just plead with these moms as they walked across the street into the abortion clinic. It was powerful. It was not always effective. Sometimes it was met with middle fingers and anger. Sometimes it was met with shame and crying. Occasionally, a woman would stop walking across the street to the clinic and come and talk to one of those counselors, which was always a really powerful moment. But my sense as a 16-year-old human being standing on that sidewalk praying was, was this. This moment, what we're doing here, is more important than most of the rest of my life. Like, I'm a high school student. I'm concerned with things like girls and sports and grades. This is a life and death moment. This is a massive decision in someone's life. This baby is going to live or die. This matters. That was my experience in those moments. And for all the, the, the weird people out there who are like, you know, abortion protesters are like, you know, um, assertive and aggressive and they're banning access to clinics and they're threatening people. None of that. None of that was happening. None of that was true. It was a very prayerful, gentle, gracious approach, but one that was morally serious. And as I think of that, I think of um, Denny and Claire Hartford, who here in the city of Omaha have been sort of pro-life leaders for decades. And, and, and they, back then, I mean, they're probably, I don't know, in their 70s now. Back then, they would have been in their you know 30s or 40s. And they were just this couple who was... Um, relentlessly committed to the pro-life cause and just faithful to rally the church, both Protestant and Catholic to care about these issues. And so I think of them as just leaders who have given their lives to advocacy for the pro-life movement, to caring about pro-life causes, to working with the legislature on any issues that involved life or abortion, to rallying the church. They're, they're just diplomatic ecumenical kind people who just care deeply about this issue. And I just remember them. I mean, Denny was this long haired guy. He looked like a, like a hippie guitar player from the seventies, you know, and just a gentle man loved the Lord, loved the unborn, loved the moms who were in these um, terrible situations. And you could just tell, just oozed out of him. He, he was not a militant kind of a person, but just a gentle, kind, but morally serious person. He and his wife, both. And I think of the decades they invested hoping and praying to see abortion come to an end in America. So that's story number one. Story number two, I'm probably 30 or 31 years old now. I'm serving as a college pastor at a church in our college ministry, a bunch of people in their late teens, early 20s. There was a young girl who had hovered on the margins of our ministry for a while, uh, then walked away from the Lord in the church, made some bad decisions, got into some bad relationships ended up pregnant, reached out to my wife and I and said, hey, I'm pregnant. I'm not sure what to do considering an abortion. She had built a good relationship with my wife. And so we just begged her, hey, would you come and sit down in our living room and can we just talk about it? And she said, yes, I will. So she came over and we talked and we just pleaded with her, hey, would you please consider adoption? Would you think about carrying this baby and putting it up for adoption? And she said, yes, she would. At the same time, we had some friends in Texas who were struggling through the journey of infertility, and we called them and said, hey, we have this girl we know who's pregnant, who wants to give her child up for adoption. Would you be willing to talk to her? Would you have interest in adopting this baby? They said, if she will put this baby up for adoption, 
we would love it. They got on a plane and flew to Omaha within three days to sit in our living room and talk with this young mom and have a conversation about this child and what her options were. It was an amazing moment. It was an amazing story. She ended up carrying the baby to term, giving it up for adoption. It ended up that because of some of the legalities state to state that she did not give it to that family, that, that friend of ours who lived in Texas, but put it up for adoption here in Nebraska. And that child was adopted by a family locally. Story number three. Now I'm probably 39, 40 years old. There's a couple in our church, a young, sharp, intelligent, successful uh, couple. Um, if you met them, they're just normal human beings that you would meet in a church. Uh, you wouldn't know there's a story uh, underneath it, like is often the case. All of us have a story, and sometimes other people don't know what it is. But the story of this couple was was this. Um, years previous, they were dating. They were both non-Christians. They were sexually active and involved. They got pregnant, uh, found it inconvenient timing in their life, and so they agreed together to have an abortion. So he wrote the check and drove her to the clinic. She went through with the procedure. They sort of dulled their consciences and moved on and just tried to treat this as an event that happens in life. They were both non-Christians. They didn't feel a ton of um, uh, ethical conviction about it, but it did weigh on them in certain ways. They moved on. A few years after that, both of them came to faith in Christ. And you can imagine how that decision felt different on the other side of giving their lives to Jesus on the other side of being convicted about a biblical ethic of life. And man, years after I met them, they said, Hey, can we sit down and talk? And they came in and sat and told me this story of this decision they had made years before. And they wanted to talk about it because they needed absolution. They needed to get it into the light. They needed to know that it was forgiven. They needed to grieve the decision they had made. They needed to be honest about the sin and the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment and the lament. They wept on my couch as they told me this story. And I had the privilege as a pastor of reading scripture over them, preaching the gospel to them, reminding them that Jesus died for sin, even grievous sin, praying that they would feel the forgiveness and grace of the gospel. To this day, not many people in their lives know that that's a part of their story. Um, but that moment was a powerful pastoral moment of realizing that in your church and mind, those are the stories that are present. Those are the kinds of people that when you, you meet people on the service, you don't know what's in their story, but so many people have a story with abortion in the past and it breeds a ton of guilt and shame and weight. And it is, it is a powerful, powerful, weighty thing in the souls of people. Why do I start this podcast with those three stories? Well, because that's what the Dobbs ruling is about. Uh, first of all, I see the Dobbs ruling as a vindication of the years, the decades invested by people like those sidewalk counselors working to love moms by telling them the truth in love and just graciously seeking to make abortion less and less of an option and, and to urge moms to choose life. There are Christians who have been actively working in this direction for decades, faithfully caring about the unborn. The Dobbs decision is a vindication of all of that work, and we should um, 
thank God for it in that regard. Second, um, the, the Dobbs decision is um, a balm to the souls of people like that couple who made a decision out of convenience because it was just available to them that they later regretted. The Dobbs decision is going to make it much harder for people to make a flippant and careless decision that's not grounded in careful moral thought. That doesn't mean it will be impossible for people to do that. But I think about how many stories 20 years from now are going to be different where people might decide we need to carry this baby to term and it's going to save us from guilt and from shame and from the moral conviction of conscience that that's present, knowing there's something in our past that's very grievous to the Lord and grievous to human existence. And finally, the Dobbs decision is a rebuke to the ignorant leftists. And there have been a lot of them in the last five days who say things like Christians aren't really pro-life. They're just wanting to score points in the culture war. They just want their issues to get advanced. They're not consistently pro-life. The, the people who say things like that don't know very many actual Christians. Because actually the conversations like the one that took place in my living room, little acts of mercy, like connecting a vulnerable pregnant mom with a couple looking to adopt. Those things happen all the time among Christians. Most of the people I know who are convictionally pro-life have stories like that in their past where they've interacted humanly and personally with a vulnerable mom or with a couple who wants to adopt a kid and have tried to broker an arrangement and make a connection and, and be personally involved. This is very normal for Christians who are pro-life. So the Dobbs decision, I think, um, brings a new, puts a new cast on those three stories in my own life and brings a sense of fulfillment and culmination to something that um, we've been working toward as Christians for decades. Now, as I say this, and as I talk about this, I want to acknowledge what I acknowledged in our public remarks here at Cormdale last Sunday, which is this, in a missional church, in a church that's really serious about gospel hospitality, we always want to acknowledge that there are people among us who do not yet have a consistent Christian ethical position on something like this. So maybe they would consider themselves pro-choice or pro-abortion. Maybe they're just unsure. Maybe they feel weird or like, like there is um, something that feels not quite right about the way the decision came down and there's just uncertainty in them. We want to acknowledge that that all exists out there. And so I want listeners to hear, hey, in your community of friends, in your church, there are people kind of all over the map on this issue. We want to be hospitable and kind and welcoming and caring toward people who are still forming their ethical opinions on this issue. But we also want to be unapologetic that Christianity does have an ethical position on the issue of abortion. Christians have always been relentlessly pro-life. This is true across all, trad all traditions, Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox. And this is true throughout history. It's not like in 1973, we decided that we were pro-life out of political expediency. The Christian ethic has always been to care for the vulnerable and especially for infants who are neglected and unwanted. In the Roman Empire, they didn't have the technological means of abortion that we have today. What the Romans did was they just did 
uh, what's called exposure, where if there was an unwanted infant, the, the mom would give birth and they would just throw the kid on the trash heap and leave it to die. Christians throughout the Roman Empire were known for rescuing these exposed infants and raising them and giving them uh, a stable life and a family and a household and a future. In fact, this is one of the things that the Romans hated about the Christians is that the Christ, they could see that the Christians were treating with dignity and honor these infants, that the Romans wanted the freedom to treat them as property and to say, this is no big deal. I can put this child on the trash heap and leave it there. So Christians have always been relentlessly pro-life and a, a proper Christian ethic, an ethic grounded in the tradition of Christianity and in the teaching of the Bible will be a consistently pro-life ethic. You cannot celebrate abortion. You cannot shout your abortion. You cannot advocate for more and more abortion and be a faithful Christian. This is the Christian ethic. Now, there are all kinds of complexities surrounding the issue, right? There are reasons why people have questions. Oh, like, what about this? What about that? Those questions all matter. But I'm speaking speaking simply to the broad-based ethic of what should a Christian position be. So how should Christians respond to the Dobbs verdict? The reason this is an important question, I've had a few people tell me since the leak back in May of the Alito draft, I've had a few people tell me, "Ah, I just feel like I'm not sure what to feel about this. I mean, it feels kind of icky. It feels like a culture war victory. It just, it, it, it doesn't feel like some moment worthy of celebration. Um, I don't feel right about like feeling glad about this. I've had a few people express that to me, really faithful, thoughtful Christians. Here's what I want to tell you, listeners. You should be dancing in the streets and weeping with joy over this verdict. This is a huge win for biblical ethics and for public justice. You should feel absolutely happy about this. You should not restrain your joy and your gratitude to the Lord. Um, On Friday night at the Thune house, we took a moment to just sit in the living room with all my kids and just pray together and praise God and thank him for this moment. It's been hard for me to keep from crying as I talk with my kids about it because this is such a meaningful and important moment. Now, let me dial back the clock a little bit and and, and say why I think I suspect some people have a hard time embracing joy, celebration, and gratitude in this moment. I think it's because the issue of abortion is wrapped up in America in broader culture war dynamics, right? So we realize that a shift in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence here is not just a matter of justice. It's also a matter of like making a statement that's going to resonate throughout our society and that certain people are going to disagree with and it's going to stir up all kinds of contention. And we all feel that. And so there's something in us that wants to sort of refrain from celebrating this moment because of all that. And there are a few things I want to say to that impulse. First of all, I want to acknowledge that um, the, the way the quote I used on Sunday when I spoke about this at Quorum Deo was a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. where he says, the law can't make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. Right? Martin Luther King Jr. understood, hey, change in civil rights law does not remove racism or bigotry from the hearts of people. But what it does 
is it makes sure that they can't lynch me in public. And that in itself is a step toward real justice. In the same way, a, a new Supreme Court ruling cannot remove all the polarization on this issue, and it can't make pro-abortion people in our culture suddenly change their minds. It's not going to change anyone's hearts on the issue, but it is going to save the lives of children, and that is an important step of public justice. So you should see it for what it is. It is a step toward a more just society that, yeah, doesn't resolve all the complexity surrounding this issue or answer all the questions or, you know, remove all the objections, but it is a step toward public justice. And that matters. And that's something we should celebrate. If you're not willing to celebrate, if you don't feel a, a sense of deep joy and peace and thankfulness to God for this change, I suspect there are one of two reasons. Number one might be a lack of conviction. You're not actually convinced that abortion is a moral evil. And so that's an ethical question that, that I think deeper uh, resonance with the Christian tradition can help to solve. The second reason you might not be uh, feeling a deep joy is, is fear of man. Um, maybe you're too worried about what the people around you think. Maybe you're surrounded by a family or by friends who just are, are very strident on issues like this. And so you realize, man, you're going to feel the brunt of people's frustration about this change or, you know, the assertion that this is against the rights of women or whatever. Uh, and, and so what keeps you from being able to celebrate is that you're too worried about what all the other voices around you are or aren't saying. Of course, listen to me, Christian, of course there are people around you who think this is the end of the world as we know it, but they're wrong. This is not, this is a triumph of public justice. This is a righting of wrongs and we should celebrate every moment of it. Um, I want to remind you what Roe did. Roe found a constitutional right to abortion that isn't actually in the constitution. It ruled that states could not ban abortion prior to what, what Roe called viability, which it said was the end of the second trimester, the, the, the moment when, in 1973 science, the moment when a child could live outside the womb. And it was a totally artificial um, decision and, and imposition of a constitutional right that the Constitution doesn't talk about. What Dobbs does is to right that wrong and to say clearly there is no constitutional right to abortion. At the time the Constitution was written, most of the states in America prohibited abortion and considered it evil. And so there's no possible way that the framers of the Constitution could have understood abortion as a, an implicit right. And again, this is a writing of bad legal policy. Um, there are many legal scholars if you go do the research, you will find them. In fact, some of them are footnoted in this very case. Uh, scholars in places like the, the, the Yale Law Review um, and the Harvard Legal Journal, pe people who would just say, hey, this is bad, Roe was bad jurisprudence. I even if you believe that abortion should be totally legal everywhere, what you should understand about the way our country works is that that would have to be a decision of the legislature or of the Congress. It cannot be a decision of the Supreme Court. So when Roe in 1973, when the Supreme Court said, oh, suddenly there's a constitutional right to abortion that's never been recognized in the history of our country, but suddenly there is. The problem with that is it confuses judicial and legislative priorities. And so those who are good legal scholars have always understood that the jurisprudence of Roe is sketchy.
And the Dobbs case solves that problem and rights that wrong. Now, listen, th- there's another reason that I think some Christians feel, um, what should I say, hesitant to celebrate this moment. And that is because so much of the cultural pressure around us right now um, shames us for being in any way conservative or for celebrating things that feel like there's an undertone of politics to them. I think there's a weird idealism in most Christians where, where we feel like this, hey, if there could have been a perfectly pure process behind all of this, and it felt like our whole country came to consensus, and out of just the best possible jurisprudence and legislative abilities and executive leadership, we as a country changed our position on abortion. Wouldn't that feel so much better? Wouldn't it be, feel sort of like an ideal way to arrive at a decision like this? There's a weird idealism that many Christians have about politics. But friends, uh, we'll probably talk about this more on a future podcast. But here's a simple definition of politics that I think will help us. Politics is the prudential pursuit of justice. The prudential pursuit of justice. In other words, it, it, it requires prudence. It's doing the best we can in the moment with what we have to work toward a just society. Prudence requires trade-offs, right? Politics is never idealistic. It's never pure. It's never like you get everything you want in exactly the way you want it. Politics is always the art of give and take. It's the art of compromise. It's dealing with flawed systems to achieve the best possible, the most just possible outcome for society. So, so here's what the progressive leftist um sort of politically politically agitated people are saying right now. They're saying, um, here's, you know, conservatives, um, people who are more culturally conservative, whether they're like, you know, right-wing Republicans or just, you know, Christians who value conservative values. What those people are happy about is they got Donald Trump elected and then Donald Trump appointed three Supreme Court justices. And then here we have this decision that's a five to four decision. And it's primarily those new conservative justices that are making the decision. And so there you go. This is, this is what we get for having Donald Trump as president. And they're trying to sort of lay all of that at the feet of Christians and conservatives and quote unquote white evangelicals, whatever that means, who, who got us here. And there's two things to say to that. One is to say, yep, that's kind of right. And another is to say, we should not be ashamed of that. Um, if we dial the clock back to 2016, there were two primary groups of people. One, there were people who said, if I have to choose between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I'm voting for Trump. I might not like him. I might not agree with him. I might not think he's a good person. But the ultimate decisions he makes are going to be better for society than the ones Hillary Clinton would make. Then there were a group of people who said, I can't in good conscience vote for Donald Trump. Therefore, I'm going to choose to not vote or vote third party or vote for an independent candidate or write in someone. I, full disclosure, was one of those people who could not in good conscience vote for Donald Trump. However, we have to admit that folks who made a prudential decision in that moment do have something to celebrate in this moment, right? That the prudence of voting for a very flawed candidate who is going to probably elevate more conservative justice, more constitutionalist, originalist justices to the Supreme Court, 
that there, there is a reason why those people back then were saying, Hey, of these two options, even though I don't love Donald Trump, I probably feel I should vote for him because of the implications for society. And in this moment, I have to, as a person who has been a hardcore, never Trumper from the beginning and still to this day thinks Donald Trump is a terrible picture of what leadership should look like. I have to say the prudential decision that some people made may have been a good and wise decision at that time. And this is what history bears out, right? Is that we don't ever have the choice of what the ideal is. We have to choose between, <laughs> between what's in front of us. And uh, this is to, to the people who have all kinds of criticism about that. I would just say like, this is how our society works. Everybody, everybody knew in 2016 that one of the questions in the election was going to be the, the Supreme Court, the kind of justice Hillary Clinton would have appointed, the kind of justices Donald Trump probably <laughs> would appoint or said he was willing to appoint. Everybody knew that was one of the things that was on the table in that election. And that is as it should be. That, that's how our country, that's how our political system works. This is actually the way things are. It doesn't do us any good as Christians to sort of hold, to, to stay uh, distant from that out of our idealism and say, well, you know, the whole process is kind of messy. It is kind of messy. But also, it's the reality of how things work. So I think we have to look at this Supreme Court decision and say this is an absolute victory for public justice. And yes, it was delivered to us by a court that is now that now has a conservative majority and a majority of justices who um, hold to a more originalist understanding of the Constitution, which I think is a proper and correct understanding of the Constitution. And so we have to say, hey, you know what? Part of our job as Christians is to make the best prudential decisions that we can. I might not like the decisions that are in front of me, but that is what it is. Um, it is amazing to me what we have seen in the past few days as far as just the vitriol, the hatred, the anger directed at pro-life people, at Supreme Court justices, at Christians in general, at anyone who would believe in any kind of restrictions upon abortion. Uh, this past weekend, the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, took the stage at a public event and said with a microphone in her hand, F. Clarence Thomas. Yesterday, Hillary Clinton went on television and said that Clarence Thomas is a person of grievance. Uh, it's amazing to me how much hatred a, a wise but conservative justice takes from people who don't agree with his point of view. And I think one thing we as Christians are called to do in this moment is to abandon all of that vitriol abandon all point scoring and just say, we are going to thank God for what we believe is a step toward public justice. We are going to thank God for uh, overturning a very bad court precedent that, that, that has led to the loss of 60 million lives since 1973. We're going to celebrate the overturning of that, but we're not going to gloat. We're not going to point score. We're not going to say, see, Donald Trump got us this What's wrong with all you Christians who didn't vote for him, which is what, so, so like both sides right now are point scoring, right? The left is saying, well, this is what you guys all get for, you know, for allowing Trump to be president. And the right is, the right is saying to more moderate or more, more um, centrist kinds of people, hey, see, you guys should have voted for Donald Trump. And since you didn't, you don't get to celebrate this victory as yours because Trump is our guy. There's just all kinds of weird cultural polarization happening right now. 
And I think Christians are called to avoid all of that and to see this as a providential act of God using very imperfect means to answer prayer and to move our country in a direction of public justice. Now, there's still plenty of work to be done. We Christians still need to advocate and work for life at the local level. Some of you hearing this live in blue states and you're going to have to push back against policies in your state that are going to try to make a more abortion even more accessible. Some of you live in red states and you're going to have the privilege of working toward restrictions on abortion. And by the way, for the people, I know there are some people in my church who are like, well, I just want to make sure that, you know, the worst cases of incest and those kinds of things that, 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 that we're not trying to pretend that those things don't happen and that they're not out there. I want to assure you, no one is trying to pretend that. And every abortion restriction that is on the books in law acknowledges exceptions like that. The very Missouri, the very Mississippi case that came before the Supreme Court in Dobbs reads like this, except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally perform or induce an abortion of an unborn human being. So they're already making exceptions for a few of the most egregious cases that we all recognize. Hey, those are out there and we can't pretend that they're not. So for those of you who think or who are buying into sort of the, the media hysteria that says, you know, all abortions are going to be restricted. People are going to be having abortions in a back alley. None of that is actually true. What's going to happen now is you're going to have each state uh, having to solve these questions for themselves. And probably you're going to see legislative pushes nationally to move in one direction or the other. Most importantly, each Christian is going to have to continue to be active locally to advance the cause of life and to work against abortion on demand, to work against a culture that treats unborn human life as expendable and that treats this as an issue of rights. One of the things you see in this dialogue, one of the things I see is that it always gets framed as a contrast between the rights of women or the rights of the unborn. It's, you know, whose rights matter more. Or if you are opposed to abortion, you're against women's rights or you're trying to restrict the right of a woman over her own body. The problem with the language of rights is it's such thin language. As human beings, we not only have rights, we also have responsibilities. The questions we ought to be asking as we think about issues like abortion is not just what's my right as a human being? What's my right as an American? What rights do I have or not have? The questions we should be asking are, what is my responsibility in the world? What responsibility do I have? And that question opens up a whole new category by which to think about the trade-offs involved in any of these matters. So I want to urge you Christians, work locally. For those of us here in Omaha, we're so thankful at Quorum Deo for partnerships with places like the Bethlehem House, which is a home for vulnerable moms who need to uh, be in a place where they can raise their, their unexpected children safely. The Assure Women's Center, which is one of the wonderful pregnancy centers in our city that does great work with vulnerable women who are considering abortions. 
Christians need to continue to do those faithful things, support those organizations, pray for those organizations, give to those organizations, volunteer at those organizations, and be active legislatively at the local and state levels uh, to speak into the legislative uh, proposals that are being put forward. Most importantly, we need to keep using our living rooms. We need to keep using our gospel community groups as places where we can come around and support moms who are in need, couples who are looking to adopt, valuing life, honoring human beings as made in the image of God. All of this matters. All of this is our calling. All of this is work we need to remain committed to. But even as we do that, let's not be afraid to celebrate, to thank God tearfully for the decision that was made last Friday and for the the wonderful step our country has taken toward honoring the life of the unborn without minimizing the complexities, without trying to pretend like there aren't situations that are very hard to sort out. We should absolutely celebrate the fact that God in his providence has moved us uh, to a place where uh, abortion is now no longer understood to be a constitutional right and where it's adjudicated in each state according to the laws of that state. So let us celebrate and give thanks to God for this moment in our culture. Let us continue to work for the right of life. And for those of you who are still conflicted about what you think or should think, uh, may the sort of historic Christian viewpoint here um, gain more weight in your soul as you think about the ethics and the complexities of the world that we live in. Thanks for listening. If you have other questions that you want to think about or other um, aspects on this conversation that you want to hear us tackle, um, I'd in, invite you to email podcast at cdomaha.com. We'd love to tackle those on a later podcast. I don't have the episode number in front of me, but you're welcome to go back and listen to our interview with Tony Clark, the director of Assure Women's Center, which was uh, last year. And so it was an episode uh, 40 or 50 episodes ago where you can go back and listen to our interview with Tony and hear her talk about the work of, um, of the Assure Women's Center. And uh, I'd love to have you hear from her. And, um, and, and consider the work that they do and why it matters and hear from someone on the front lines who's um, trying to, to engage with vulnerable women in a Christ-centered, honoring way. So thanks for listening to this special episode. And uh, I would love to hear your further questions about this topic and any others in our culture. We'll see you again next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.